So much history is wrapped up around the singular topic of piracy. We found that out after realizing I needed to split this episode into two separate ones to make sure I didn't have hours for one episode of this brand new show. Apparently that's a bad thing until you become popular. Who would have guessed? Last week we dove into the ancient origins of piratical waters, looking at the ancient Egyptians, Greek, Romans, and into the early Middle Ages or the Dark Ages to some. Had some run-ins with some men from the north. We'll get ready for more tales from the high seas, the East Asian piracy, global exploration, and the so-called golden age of piracy. The real meat and potatoes, if you will. All that more on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied. Critical. Need to know. Information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Stop skipping your remedial class. We left off at a very interesting place last week, and if you're listening to this one before you listen to that, I uh, before listening to that, I recommend you go back and listen strictly based off of chronological order. Before we go bow first into another massive sea of stories about pirates, some nautical humor for you. Some quick requests and thanks. Thank you for everyone who continues to review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podchaser. If you don't know how to go to Podchaser, it's on our website link in the link tree. It's the first big link. Click that, and then at the top it says review on Podchaser. You click that, and that'll take you there. Super easy, quick. Just make an account and review us. You can add words to your reviews to, you know, build it a little bit, make it make a little more punch to it. Um, but yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Also, to any of the Dans listening, what's up? Thank you for joining, and thank you for everybody for the support. Um, share with people. That's the best way to share, uh, like, share support without spending any money. Uh, if you want to spend some money, there's also in the link tree, there's a little merch store. I only have a couple designs up there so far, but I'll be adding more as the show goes on. Uh, there's also a tip section on the Captivate website for the show and also in the link tree. So if you want to donate some money, you know, help, you know, go towards the hosting fees and things like that, I'd appreciate that. But if not, no big deal. Share it. Tell your friends. That's the best way you can help me. So, um, and then also go to the Facebook and Instagram. Those are also in the link tree. You can see the reference images from the episode that are also going to be in the YouTube video as well. Uh, and like I said, all the links could be found in the link tree. So anyway, with that being said, on to the fun stuff, back to the pirates. Let's get into it. And we left off in the Middle Ages around the 13th century in Europe. Vikings were beginning to settle down. No more raiding really for them as they were living in the lands that they once raided. Piracy was not really over, but it looked a lot less like Vikings from the north and more just like typical 12th century vessels stealing from one another. What was once a section off bits of continent due to the Crusades, the Western European nations began to trade and mingle with those in the Mideast, albeit a little violently. This meant more trading across the sea as it was still the fastest way to cut across a map. Boats went from being single-masted and small to being more rotund and having two masts while still having rowing capacity. The battle versions often had little stands on the front and back that looked like castle walls at the top with the, the little grooves cut out. Uh, called the Forecastle and Aft Castle, which makes sense. Four being front, aft being back. This is actually a term that's still used in different ways. When I was in the Navy, they obviously use language that predates them, uh, the modern ships, but there's a section of the ship called the Foxel, which is an abbreviated version of Forecastle. And I was on an aircraft carrier, and this is this section's a big room where there's 
sections of the chain for the anchor that weaves through it and uh, we would have like meetings and stuff in there and it's not really used how it used to be how it used to be used uh was a covered section for people to sleep basically on the ship and it evolved as ships evolved and was no like the castle jets like those things wouldn't uh wouldn't be part of its design for a super long time but that's just how it started now that's super important but i want to describe the types of ships that as we kind of move forward as the size of the crews will begin to change pretty drastically in the next couple hundred years now as much history is involved in the european front of piracy areas in the china sea experienced a lot of piracy dating back just as far as the european counterparts should be no surprise since i stated last week that the history of stealing people's things with a boat is not a new concept, and many of the Asian communities sit very tightly on the water and have a rich history of balance with ocean, fishing, that sort of thing. According to the Chinese uh, sources on history, piracy can be traced as far back as the 5th century BCE. Even the Romans had learned about pirate-invested waters of the Indian Ocean, which is not, you know, the super East Asia, but in the Asian continent. A document known as the Tabula Puentigarina. Puent Puentigariana. Oh, man. Latin. Uh, or the Puentinger map is a copy of a map thought to be made from the 5th century CE and it describes dangers off the coast of India which is fun to think about these areas as you don't typically think about them intermingling in that sort of way. Of course, like the proud naval traditions of the Scandinavians or the Rhodes or Athenian people, people of eastern edges of Asia became quite adept with traveling and trading along the water. Fishing is a major source of food to this day in these communities and, and something that comes to mind almost instantly when thinking of Eastern Asian nations, in my opinion. Around the 11th century, ships called junks began being used by the Chinese. And the name's a little bit of a misnomer. They weren't junk. Uh, they were unassuming by having low decks that were long and thin, but prowess of the rigging of the sails was far more superior to the western versions around the same time period the holes were excellent for shallow waters a theme i think fits with the fishing history of the of the region ship even had a frame of sorts instead of having walls make up the rigidity of the ship junks featured these walls on the inside of the hole that would make up compartments along the length of the ship used for storage and different things like that imagine like a 70s style standing shelf with all these like different shaped rectangular compartments laid down and made watertight with a whole wall around it and then underneath and that kind of gives you an idea of what uh what this might have looked like that framework throughout the length of the ship actually made it more strong to resist the harsh china sea water so more advances would make these ships be some of the best by the time like by the fifth century compared to the rigging like the rigging of other ships in europe kind of caught up by that time and so conversely the Chinese junks the, the actual like shit part of it caught up to the rigging um and they're pretty good by that time there of course there's a lot of instances of piracy before the events I'm about to describe happen but this is kind of when it becomes an issue that the emperors of these places began to take action and thus why we have document you know documentation about it in an almost directly mirrored event of what was happening with the danes in europe a tribe called the jurchen left the frozen northern lands and in ships to raid japan around 1019 ce slaughtering japanese men and taking women for prisoners the governor was killed and an estimated 1200 japanese were taken prisoner while Almost 400 were killed in the raid. After this, it seems that things really set off, not directly because of it, but definitely ramped up after. In the 13th century, Mongols were terrorizing pretty much anyone and everything, Korea included. With their need to defend the inland from the ravenous Mongol hordes, this left their coastlines le with less than optimum defenses, and we all know what that means. 
with hungry neighbors who knew these places would be open that left the korean peninsula open for raiding in 1226 governing bodies of korea at the time sent letters to the japanese asking why people from their island of tushima were cluttering their bays and causing mischief the response of the japanese was to execute 90 individuals to essentially create the fear for others and repair diplomatic relations as well through this interaction the term of the pirates was created Weku in Korean or Wako in Japanese. This is how pirates of any descent in these waters will be known until about the 17th century. Famine and war surrounding in the surrounding areas were forcing people into piracy. This accelerated in 1275 when the Mongols had finally taken Korea as a vassal state. With the bolstered presence of Mongol warriors in the coastal waters, Japanese pirates pretty much dared not to raid this area which really speaks to the presence of the mongols the mongols even won ships from places they conquered but were composed mostly of pirates because they were not familiar with ships at all uh mercenary vessels now sailed against chinese coast and it was the uh, mercenary vessels now sailed against the japanese coast and it was japanese pirates who were skilled enough to defend their country so in a weird turn of events pirates fought against one another after several failed attempts the mongols gave up on the attack on japan partially due to the fact that their ships were being wiped out in what the Japanese would call divine winds, the typhoon that legend says destroyed the Mongol fleet. These divine winds, also known as kamikaze, and that's kind of where that term comes from, and they appeared twice, and twice defeated Mongol ships. So either the gods were watching over the island of Japan, or the Mongols sucked ass at trip planning. These defeats came at a cost to the Mongols and led to more defeats. They're even beaten back by the Chinese by the mid-14th century. Japan would be having its own government trouble, and piracy was once again rampant. The Ming Dynasty was beginning in China, and the last thing Emperor Hongwu wanted to deal with was pirates from their island neighbors. Another letter was sent out. I love how many letters were exchanged between these kingdoms, because not only just in general, but it also gives a lot of context to what's happening. But I just love that that's how we used to keep... Yeah, anybody could write that, but you gotta trust this one. I don't know. In the letter, a threat was made, basically saying, you're gonna fix this problem, or I will. But as Hongwu had a coup thwarted against him and was dealing with roughly 30,000 people involved, which is an insane coup. Japan was realigning themselves to become stable once again. As, as the Ashikaga shogunate was repairing the damage done, trade was once again established between the three kingdoms, and there was even a short exchange of prisoners when diplomats would come to visit, not to free them at all, but for their home country to deal with how they saw fit. Moving back to Europe, as things eventually get tied together here in a little bit, by the 13th century, different factions had different ways of dealing with pirates. The Hanseatic League, for instance, was created in a weird type of naval association where they would watch over trade routes and ports, maintain security in the Balkan Seas. There was also a standard of having armed men aboard ships to prevent or defend from pirate activity. Others began to take advantage of major wars, like the Hundred Years' War. The English Channel, rife with pirates now waiting for movement of any kind of jump for. We even have the first real solid versions of some privateers. The Victual Brothers was a band of pirates who, on their own, caused some major damage in the trade in the 14th century. Fighting between Mecklenburg and Denmark had led to the hiring of the Victual Brothers by way of Duke of Mecklenburg and his lack of a proper navy. Wishing to wage what is called the Kapperkrieg, or Privateer's War, against Queen Margaret of Denmark, offering a letter of mark, which we'll learn about a little more later, it's a legal note that essentially gives you permission to be a pirate on behalf of a royal request. These brothers would smuggle goods to besiege places, take food to others, and even engage in full-on naval battles. They were especially brutal in nature, allegedly slaying most of the people on the vessels that they boarded, taking what they wanted, pretty much. They got a little too greedy and attacked Bergen in Norway in 
1393, forcing the Hanseatic League, Denmark, Mecklenburg, and others to sign a treaty, forcing them from the Baltic Sea. The Victual brothers had a haven in Gotland, and they simply just went there, but a man named Conrad von Hjungingen of the Teutonic Knights invaded Gotland and slaughtered most of the pirates who were there. Jumping back slightly, in 1241, allegedly the first man to be executed by hanged, drawn, and quartered, done to a pirate. This is definitely a writing on the wall for kingdoms like England and how they would deal with pirates in the future. But all crime was punished pretty graphically back then, yet crimes continued and even still happen. Anyway, a man named William Maurice was a pirate who apparently was very dangerous, although there's not a lot of information on him other than a name, title, and type of death. King Henry III hated pirates and ordered the man's death by hanging, drawn, a quarter. This is the same thing that they would end up doing to William Wallace of Braveheart fame. It consisted of the subject being dragged, which is the drawn part, to the gallows, which could be miles at some point. Once there, they were hanged, but not really in the same way that we normally think, the short drop and sudden stop type. More like a uh, suspended choking. <laughs> where they were dangled and strangled, I guess is the best way to do it, or describe it, until they were either completely or mostly dead. After that, they were either, uh, you know, their, chop their head was either chopped off, and then they cut the body, or they cut off some genitals, disemboweled the individual, and burnt them while they hanged. Then they would cut the body into quarters, which is where the quarter come from, and sounds like some good, wholesome family entertainment. And people did all join up and watch this thing happened back in the day people say that we're violent as a society now but holy cow can you imagine let's get the kids wife honey let's go to uh let's go watch this guy get cut up in pieces <laughs> all right where's my popcorn um some of the other things besides insane punishment to deter pirates were innovations on ships a ship that dates back to the ninth century called the cog would evolve uh, from different techniques that would make it more resistant to pirate attack. While the walls of the ships were pretty standard for boats at that time, they featured high sides that would make it harder to board in sea fights, especially if the pirates had shorter vessels. The extra, the extra height on the walls making it, you know, more difficult. They could be up to 82 feet long and up to 26 feet wide and had a crew size of 50. Further ocean travel would lead to a need for bigger ships that could handle strong waters of the ocean. Portuguese developed a ship called the Caravel in around the 13th century featuring multi-mass sails. The name potentially stemming from the Caravel method of building as opposed to the clinker built style where the planks on the whole lap over one another similarly to how like Viking longboats have if you look at pictures of the sides of them you can see the the lap the caravel is a smooth way of the hole to be built the nina and the pinta were caravels and they sailed across the ocean with columbus of course in 1492 the other ship was a little more modern built in the 15th century santa maria was a carrick style model also portuguese design these dudes love ships like a lot anyway as they began to cruise around the coasts of Africa, they needed bigger ships, so the Carrick was their idea. Length of 150 feet, which is double that of the average caravel, displacing 1,000 tons, which is 10 times as much as the caravel. Displacement is used to define ships and weight of the water displaced by the vessel at sea. Uh, think of, you know, when you sink a, when you, like, sink some large toy in the bathtub, you know, when you're little. Anyway, and the water goes up, that's the displacement. Physics, you know what I mean? <laughs> Science. Uh, the Carrick also had a large round hole that curved upward to combat the high seas. Now, uh, these things are really funny looking, and honestly, like, I thought they were fake when I was looking at pictures. I was like, that's, there's no way that's what the ships look like. And then you see, re like, re authentic recreations, and you're like, I guess that's, that is what it looked like. In my brain, it's just all, like, mid-18th century ships. Is That's all the sailing ships. That's what they look like. <laughs> 
anyway, uh, the Carrick would hold up to 200 sailors, which is massive compared to the 30 of the Caravel. All of these ships featured masts and were not rowed. The Carrick featured three and sometimes four masts to hold uh, many different variations of sails and riggings to pull them along the water. thing that always made me curious about how ships' sails operated, uh, because, you know, the wind's not always at your back, right? Well, I saw a video explaining how it worked, and I think I can explain it through that. So, they explained that the sails could push the ship forward as long as the wind doesn't, uh, wasn't at a certain degree. I can't remember the exact specific degrees, but it's directly in front of you, and then plus or minus... I don't know. I want to say, I want to say 40 on either side, but that could be wrong. That might be a lot. I don't know. Maybe 20, so 40 total. Anyway, so the the really only thing you could do was a method called tacking, where you would basically, instead of going straight ahead, because that's where your destination was, you would go off to either direction and let the wind kind of work around the sail in a weird way, similar to like how an airplane wing would work, and you would use the rudder of the ship to counteract that movement, and then that would kind of propel you forward. It's very confusing, but, you know, it is what it is. Now, the advances of the ship were not just in how they were pushed forward, but also, you know, the gunpower on them. Arrows were starting to lose their thrill with advents of gunpowder leading to cannons originating in the ninth century in china gunpowder led to cannons and cannons in the field led to cannons on the ships this makes ship battles more exciting but also more dangerous large blast in the wooden hole spelling certain doom for those on board this meant that the power powder in the shot had to be perfect and the distance perfect and the tactics and maneuvers also perfect or death also if you took a shot to where your powder storage is, you're <laughs> you got a real bad day going. Cause that's that's a Michael Bay explosion if I've ever seen one. Anyway, this is just the life of the people on the water and something to consider as we enter the next phase of our story. Although at first combat was simple, it would take a while to change very drastically. So in the crux of the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, things began to take shape in terms of how we view the world. The Byzantine or Byzantine Empire was mentioned in the last episode, began to be crushed from civil wars and outside attacks uh, after the 12th century. The former Eastern Roman Empire collapsed after the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Muslim Ottoman Empire. The rifts between Muslim nations and Christian ones caused the Ottoman Empire to essentially shut off the access to the Silk Road of the former Mongolian Empire. What does that mean? Longer trips for shorter distances, sailing around the Horn of Africa. The first to do this? That's right, the goddamn Portuguese. And if you think I'm being too hard on them for no reason, give it a second. While Columbus was sailing west to go east, Vasco da Gama sailed around the Horn of Africa connecting Europe to Asia. Big time. Big. It's a big move. While Portugal worked their way around Africa, they left bases and forts to claim their land, getting a century-long head start on the transatlantic slave trade. That's right. They were exporting around 800 slaves from Africa annually, which is not that much, but when you realize the major market was not really there yet, that's a lot. I mean, any is a lot now, but, you know. They were mainly just taking these people back to Portugal, so it's a lot. And he's a lot, like I said, but after Columbus returned from his technically failed expedition, he still believed the route to be, uh, exist to Asia. Because of this, treaties began to be drawn and make some peace among the chaotic waters. Uh, the Treaty of Tordesillas divided the ocean and thus the world between Portugal and Spain, which is pretty funny because nobody in these areas knew this except for them. <laughs> Columbus, as we know, went to the Americas, well, really mainly just Cuba and the Caribbean, several times over 10 years, and this would really open the world up to travel and thus giving 
our topic prime real estate in the future. Now, I want to stop for a second and really drive home the point about how insane it was to navigate uncharted waters across wide open oceans. The entire concept with the technology at the time is just mind-blowing to me. They had familiarity with sailing, sure. Some people navigated the northern Atlantic before with Greenland, Iceland, and the actual the Viking exploration that got to North America, but to think you know about where Columbus was going, the Caribbean, the place that gets hit by hurricanes constantly in certain months of the year. Like sure, storms hit the western edge of Europe, but the massive swells in the Atlantic with ships that were really not that big in reality. The Carrick style, Santa Maria being almost 120 feet long, we measured waves in the Atlantic that approached 60 feet, and they had no way of tracking anything like that. Basically just going off of like, well, we know that there's storms in this time of year, and we're gonna kind of, we're gonna do that. <laughs> they could barely see in front of them. You know, they had their telescopes, and that's kind of it. An issue also being when the winds stop. I mentioned how they sailed with front winds, but how about no wind? The doldrums are a phenomenon in which there's no wind, and the ship just kind of sits and waits until the wind comes back could be days or longer before they're able to move and if they're in a ship that was not fitted with oars you know it's a hard time so with wind they're still out months at a time rocking back and forth only using buckets for the bathroom eating salted meats and pickled goods they had dried out grains uh, the worst of all these was hardtack or ship biscuits the multi-cooked yeastless bread that can last long spans of time if kept out of the fresh air they had to smash it soak it in water milk or beer uh before they could actually bite it and they did drink at sea and it's not because they were like ah we're sailors we gotta get hammered it's actually weirdly enough makes sense they would drink beer because beer does have you know nutritional value it does have carbs and vitamins things like that and also it's more resistant to microbacteria than water would be kept in the same you know conditions so that's a little fun fact that i learned today anyway back to our story while most of the renaissance is looked at as peaceful there's still plenty of shenanigans going on with the roots around africa set by the portuguese they met up to the china sea after potentially being blown off course chinese referred to these people as southern barbarians and this would connect the powers across the lands together now via oceans and begin to usher in a big bulk of the pirate action. Portuguese placed a base essentially in Malacca and tried to spread Christianity as well as introducing more unsavory things into the Southeast Asian countries. As mentioned before, the growing Ottoman Empire had a chokehold on the Silk Road and was also a place that had its own pirates. Barbary pirates or corsairs as they're sometimes referred to as operated in the areas around the Ottoman Empire. Lands that were considered part of the Ottoman Empire, but also ones that were republics on their own and chose their own rulers, uh, were massive in attacking the Portuguese and the Spanish. The northern coastline of Africa is where these pirates would hail, places like Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli. The pirates seeking slaves to add to the rich Barbary slave trade, which I guess I had forgotten about or never learned about. Either way, this was far less organized than the slave trades later on, but estimates are around 1 to 1.25 million from the 16th and 18th century. They were pretty indiscriminate in their choosings, <laughs> uh, unlike the people who took slaves around the same time and later, equal opportunity slavers, if you will. They would seize merchant ships as well as attack towns along the coast, even going as far north as into the Netherlands. These actions actually go back a few hundred years, but the real rampant nature of them caused people to look at them a little more closely. Some European men even left or were shunned and decided to join up with these Barbary pirates and put their skills to use. 
I mentioned Algiers, and they even had a pair of pirate rulers in the name of uh, Hayreddin, Barbosa, and Oruk Rees. The brothers rose to prominence due to their impressive naval skills and took and took control of Algiers for the Ottomans. Barbosa is the same name as that Jeffrey Rush character in Pirates of the Caribbean, but I don't think they're related at all. Now, there were attempts at legitimacy across the globe. For Japan and China, the Kane was a legitimate scroll or message carried by parties wishing to do business signed and dated for the correct time in which to do so basically giving you a timeline in which you were allowed to legally trade in china two rival clans arrived at the same time to do a trade but one carried outdated papers and the other one was within their range the clan that had outdated papers bribed the chinese officials and won the bid essentially and this did not sit well with the other guys uh he and his men killed the main delegator of the chinese burned the ship down that they were on and uh, then scorched earth tactic like move through the land that they traveled as they went back to ningbo and then they stole a bunch of ships in the process which is pretty gnarly but i get it you know main issue with the kane system was that japan was struggling with the warring states at hand and having no central government power to back the kanes and with that the official tradeability for japan was kind of you know dead in the water the people had a need for goods and luckily for them pirates you know were happy to oblige many of which held refuge in fortification fortifications along the coast bands of different ethnic groups uh kind of banding together portuguese pirates even joined them because there's nothing the portuguese love more than cruelty on the water no i don't think so but it's fun to you know speculate <laughs> by the middle of the 15th century magellan's mission to circumnavigate the globe was accomplished not by him because he died after some indigenous people of the philippines showed him what for his successor became the actual first one to do so juan sebastian alcano uh, this was the first circumnavigation of the globe a feat not many have claimed i mean I have, but I am no ordinary man. Just kidding. But I did do it. Uh, I got myself a fancy little certificate and everything. Anyway, if you don't know the story, it's pretty gnarly. Magellan had five ships and was off to course a route around the globe because they all knew it was round and could end up on the other side. There's just no proof that it wasn't dangerous to do so. They thought crossing the Atlantic was dangerous, not because there was a cliff on the other side, but because there was no, uh, it was not known to be done it was so hard to do especially with the ships that they had back then what they now knew was that there was land in the way of a straight shot which is fine just go around right well they also did not know how far down this land stretched or up or whatever and therefore massively underprepared remember when i said it was a little crazy to do something so wild with a little idea of what awaited this is why they had five ships 270 men give or take they left in september of 1519 and returned in september 1522 which is not not good <laughs> they also only returned with one ship the victoria which was a carrick style similar to the santa maria and they had 18 men with them and it took them three years so granted not all of them died 12 got captured by the damn portuguese and one returned a year into the voyage upwards of 60 were slaughtered in the philippines with magellan when he tried to spread the word of jesus over there although it wasn't a complete loss magellan and the armada tried to find the ship that ended up turning back after a year and in that search noticed how calm the pacific ocean was and named it such mar pacifico and so that's that's where that came from neat after that he was like hey guys we rounded through this super cool strait of magellan named after named after a really cool guy i guess uh should only be you know three or four days to the east indies and uh then it took four months for them to reach the philippines and he died like i mentioned before basically all that to really drive home the point of how treacherous and insane the journey was there's no wonder why you know, piracy was able to thrive in this time period. He's not the only person around this time to do so. A pirate, a real major one, also decided to take on this task. 
Sir Francis Drake. Uh, see, Francis Drake, he was raised by the seas. He's a, re he's a real sailor boy. And he sailed with a man named John Hawkins when in his youth, who had a similar kind of persona. The pair had their roots in the slave trade, which is always a great way to start your career, you know? Uh, they, they're both some of the more notable privateers of the years leading up to the Golden Age of Piracy. But before turning our attention to Drake, I want to explain privateers a little more. I have mentioned them both in last week's episode and a little bit earlier on in this one, but I haven't really given like a full exploration, er, explanation or exploration. Privateers are commissioned sailors who perform actions of war on behalf of whoever is paying them against another nation. The only thing that made a privateer a privateer and not a pirate was these commissions. Similar to how legal trade was only allowed with those with Kanes in Japan, as I mentioned before, many of the most famous pirates often started out as sailors or captains on privateer contracts or letters of mark. These letters essentially put the king or queen's signature on whatever nation or whatever nation that commissioned you on the actions that you carried out. The argument can and has been made that to the nations being attacked, there's really no difference between a privateer or a pirate. The gains of the loot taken was also divided differently with more wealth spread to the sponsors and also the issuer of the letter of mark then the captains and you know whoever may own the ship and then lastly you know the crew because of this especially during the golden age many would rather take the risk and sail on a pirate vessel than for some privateer that splits as the splits were a little more favorable it's also similar how many would choose privateer over being just a typical merchant sailor due to better pay so if you're looking at it as a scale um royal navy is probably the lowest paying and then merchant and then privateer and then pirate pirate being better shares not necessarily better pay because you still have to you still have to earn your keep right anyway looping back to francis drake as he is one of the more famous and pretty brutal of the privateers of the 16th century earning his stripes while supposedly sailing under john hawkins while the ships under his command attacked portuguese slave ships in african towns and selling those taken from the attacks in different ports in both europe and the caribbean uh the more success they had, the more that uh, Hawkins gained favor of the Queen Elizabeth I. Naturally, the Portuguese were angry, not just because their vessels were being attacked, but also due to the fact that they were now competing in the human selling business. And unfortunately, for the people being sold, this just kind of meant a lot more of that happening. Uh, competition. Not good. Anyway, by 1567, though, Hawkins had some failures and lost public support of the Queen as she wanted to keep wars from erupting against both Spain and Portugal. Drake joined him in 1566 on an expedition that resulted in the release of all 90 slaves without any money gained, which I think is okay, and I think the slaves probably think it's okay too. This led Hawkins to pursue more wins, and that was really mixed for the next few years. He ended up joining forces with some local kings in the Sierra Leone and received a portion of the captives from their victory. But the thought is that he was not given, you know, the lion's share since he really needed their help as they didn't really need his help you know so they they could have overpowered him they're like you're gonna just give you're just gonna get what we give you pretty much this led directly to hawkins and his armada uh eventually being hit up with storms split up eventually hawkins and drake being among those uh remaining captains who were forced to port in san juan de ulia de ula ulua i don't know while here they're <laughs> While here, there's a massive battle between the Spanish and the privateers with English papers. There's a truce between the two while the English worked on their ships, uh, repairing them from the damage from storms. But obviously, things did not hold. Following some hostage exchanges, the Spanish began to arrange people on the shore, as did the English. Um, but the Spanish force was secretly there to prevent any English trade in the New World. And the English did not know this, which makes sense. Thus, secretly. <laughs> 
The Spanish had hidden troops on the shore and then also on a transport vessel that they wedged between the two forces. Suspicion arose while the English had seen forces moving around carrying weapons and such before the Spanish signaled for the attack. Spanish attackers quickly overwhelmed the English on the shore before taking over the cannons that they had. Spanish ship boarded an English one and the cannons on the shore began firing at the English ships. The once six ship band of English ships was quickly turned to two and the 13 ship armada only lost one ship and the two English ships became overcrowded with fleeing Englishmen, Drake captaining one and Hawkins leading the other. Drake fled slightly before Hawkins which you know he was kind of like hey man what you abandoned me uh and <laughs> when they both uh, returned to England Hawkins was not super pumped, which makes sense. Things did not improve between the Spanish and the English, and the English really did not have their own navy in terms of how we typically think of. They relied heavily on privateers like Drake to hit the Spanish and Portuguese. What is interesting is you can kind of look at the lists of famous privateers and the time frame between the 16th and mid-17th century, and there's only one Spanish privateer, and he was mainly enlisted to fight against the Turks. There's probably some others, but, you know, on the whole, it's mostly just English, and there's like a few Dutch ones, but like I said, mostly English. This kind of harkens back to the fact that England did not have a major navy until, you know, the 17th and 18th centuries. Not, not to say that there are... Not any from other countries, but there's strong correlation between the lack of other countries represented and their naval presence like Spain and Portugal. Other famous ones from England are Sir Walter Riley and Captain Charles Newport, both of which who have places in American colonies named after them, like Raleigh, North Carolina and Newport News, Virginia, respectively. It's actually disputed that Newport News is named after him, but there's a university there called Charles Newport University in Newport News, so... Kind of feel like it's probably named after him. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and make that guess. <laughs> While the English were attacking the Spanish and Portuguese, Spain had conquistadors in the Americas, but also in the East. It's often typical to think about the conquistadors in the Americas, ruining Aztec and Incan empires, but they also tore up the Philippines. In the late 16th century, Japanese silver was all the rage, and there was especially great fortune in the Philippine Islands, and there was also a place where some Japanese pirates loved to hide from the greater Chinese navy. These pirates ended up taking over a province that was rich with silver called Kugaya, or the Kugayan uh, province, and the Spanish, who had made a governor in the Philippines already, had enough. He commissioned a naval captain named Juan Pablo de Carrion to take care of these pirates. A wacko ship was destroyed by Carrion, and there's more on the way. Carrion had a hand a handful of ships and less men, but they had cannons, guns, and better training with the two, which led them to becoming victorious against the pirates. But the pirates of the China Sea would not make it an easy life for the Western visitors. It should also be noted that the details of this event come directly from the Spanish as they attempt attempted to secure more reinforcements and ships. And they say that they were outnumbered, yet won, but needed reinforcements. So... I don't know. It sounds like they were, like, they made it sound like they just slaughtered these people. Super easy. So, they either were outnumbered and won, or they barely won. And to me, it sounds like the ragtag pirates gave the pristine Spanish conquistadors a pretty good run for their money, and they had to write some nonsense to cover their butts. Japan began to get their things sorted out by 1591, and a reunification had taken place. With this, the governing powers decided that they should use pirate use the pirate-infested waters to their advantage, and, and they began to pay the former pirates for their goods instead of leaning away of it. Yes, there was piracy in the waters, but now, instead of paying money to fix it, they would let the pirates, whose income might be tarnished by the actions of others, deal with these issues as they came up. Some self-governing, which is kind of interesting. In the Mediterranean, the chaos between different European conflicts allowed the Barbary pirates to flourish more, until each opposing country kind of got tired of them individually and decided to take their own actions. 
or really just urging these pirates to attack their rivals for them. France would tell them to attack Spain and Britain, and the Dutch would tell them to attack France and so on. It wouldn't be until the Golden Age that these pirates would be pacified with treaties with the British. Slavic regions had their own interesting encounters. A small pirate faction struggled for independence. The Zaporizhian existed in Ukrainian and Polish regions. This place was full of runaway slaves, peasants, and pirates alike. They attacked shores of the Ottoman Empire and places near Crimea, even allegedly raising settlements near Istanbul as colonies for the Spanish began to take hold. I mentioned St. Augustine in Florida before, which was founded in 1565, but there are others and this created a network of trade and thus other nations began to focus on this area. Places like Hispaniola, Tortuga, among the Caribbean islands that people would begin to try and lay claim. Failed English colonies like Roanoke led to permanent ones like Jamestown, and Jamestown had its own struggles, but not as bad as Roanoke did. So much so that when a traveling armada aiming to get more settlers into Jamestown was blown off course due to storms, ended up in Bermuda. The Triangle. Uh, people elected just to stay there instead of dealing with the issues that Jamestown was experiencing. They had droughts and some other things going on, and it was, wasn't super great. Uh, the settlement on the archipelago of Bermuda put an English foothold in the Caribbean, which would lead to a lot of interesting exchanges for pirates and merchants alike. There's a boom for the 17th century of settlements along the east coast of, of America and in the Caribbean as well. I'm pretty much all over the place, but, you know, it is what it is. All this means a lot of transatlantic trade, which means a lot of both noble and less than noble sailors. In the mid-17th century, groups began to take initiative on their own. The Buccaneers, which is, you know, we know that as like a popular name now, but the history is kind of unique, stemming from a group of French that lived on Hispaniola and then later in Tortuga. These people ate meat from the Bucan, which is a so sort of frame, I think is how I saw it described as like a rotisserie type thing that they used to cook. Bucan made became Buccaneer, uh, one who used a Buccan, and then Buccaneer, <laughs> because English language ruins everything. So these men moved to Tortuga full-time and would make their mark by attacking Spanish ships, returning to Spain with whatever their reward might be. This is really one of the first instances of lawless attack, meaning no crown enforcer directed uh, directed instance within the Caribbean. The Bahamas become a home base of sorts for the Buccaneers, allowing them to resupply and attack a little more rapidly than others would be able to. The English Crown began to sanction these Buccaneers and to go after Spain exclusively, as the Crown often did. England even sent special naval officers to lead these Buccaneers to make sure things work smoothly. One notable example of these was a Welsh captain by the name of Henry Morgan that name sounds familiar to you then you have a drinking problem no just kidding but that is the be believed namesake of the beloved rum captain morgan anyway henry morgan was a privateer who made his name in the caribbean in fact we really don't know a lot of his life before his joining in the caribbean but we do know he arrived and was part of some small raiding parties in the 1660s after being in the caribbean for a while he became friends with the local governor getting letters of mark and attacking different spanish ships around cuba and panama by 1668 he raided towns all the way down in venezuela even destroying a spanish squadron of ships in the process pretty impressive he attacked panama directly and did quite well spanish allegedly lost 500 men to the 15 privateers killed in the action english wanted to make sure the spanish weren't mad about what captain morgan was doing which makes sense so he was arrested and sent back to england the current english law on piracy was hefty but only the captain could be charged and also required him to be tried in england which is important to note in the future when he arrived in england he was praised by everyone even the king and two years later he was even knighted and given his professional title back 
in Jamaica, and in a weird turn of events, appointed to get rid of piracy in the ports, which is kind of funny. Uh, he wasn't so quick to do so as many of the men that he was friendly with would have been charged, some of his old buddies, and he, you know, started taking bribes to look the other way from the pirate activities, which is, that's a, that's a real one. He's a good friend. He also took to the slave trade, not a good friend, and plantation life, owning three plantations by the time he died in 1688. Story really sets up the fact that the long arm of the European rule was not quite long enough to control the Caribbean and the colonies that it would have liked, and that led to plenty of lawlessness in the area and even the east coast of the colonies as time moved forward. Buccaneers continued to play a part in the piratical events until 1690s, until when the friction between them and the English, Spanish, and now the French made things increasingly more risky. This drove them to be either you know, regular legal maritime workers, or just straight up piracy. They're tired of riding the line, I guess. <laughs> this also marks a point where privateers begin to slip into piracy. Granted, it wouldn't be until after Queen Anne's War that the big hitters would come, but this is, you know, the crack in the proverbial armor of privateering. There's a lot of risk, whether it be from opposing countries or just in general of seafaring and warfare on the high seas. Yet in that fighting itself is treacherous and the pay to be a sailor on a naval warship was low. Privateering only paid slightly more that the, you know, true piracy really flourished. Bridge years of the late 1690s before Queen Anne's War saw Henry Avery go from Royal Navy sailor to slave trader to pirate. Uh, he became one of the biggest pirates after gaining the command of a ship following the mutiny aboard in 1694. A quick rename of the ship from Charles II to Fancy, and they were off. Avery told his men of the riches to be had in the Indian Ocean, and major scores happening there, and the crew was ready for a new captain to lead them to glory. His methods of persuasion and enslavement amassed his crew, and soon they made modifications to the ship in form of raising some unnecessary portions of the ship to make it lighter and faster. They captured different vessels in the Atlantic and even some privateer vessels. They ran up the Horn of Africa and made their way into the Indian Ocean and other areas and gained the attention of the East India Company. In 1695, a coalition of five other pirates joined Avery to attack the Grand Muggle Fleet, and that's Muggle, M-U-G-H-A-L, not M-U-G-G, L.E. Harry Potter people. Oh, that fleet included the Fateh Muhammad, an 800-man, 94-cannon massive ship. This compared to the 46-gun frigate, that fancy, uh, the Fancy. A few of the ships joining Avery proved not to be fast enough for the chase. The Fateh Muhammad actually did not fight much when they arrived, potentially due to a battle prior, but the treasure was captured from it, ranged uh, upwards of 60,000 pounds on the high end. Another ship was in sights, and Avery might have got lucky when that ship backfired aboard. Uh, the cannon must have exploded and blew up some of the powder charges and things, and the crew was shook. The Indian crew aboard, uh, not ready, and that gave time for another pirate vessel to join up and they all climbed aboard in some hand-to-hand -hand combat which allegedly took three hours there's some accounts of which alleged the indian captain running below and then arming slave women that he had aboard before sending them up to fight the pirates which is wild others said there's no reason why captain ibrahim was not victorious against them while the massive ship had blades muskets ready all over the place and more people Despite this, the ship eventually surrendered, and another report says that the pirates subjected the survivors to some horrific actions, assault and death all around. The romanticism of pirates has led to some of these accounts being written off, but there are confessions of the captured men from Avery's crew that say it to be true. Estimated 90 to 130,000 in today's British pound was said to be split among the crew, but the East India Company was on their tail. 
Eventually, the first worldwide manhunt was issued after them, a thousand pounds for his capture alone, and the Crown said that he wasn't even qualified for any sweeping pardon of any of the pirates that was offered at the time. All that was standing, Avery was never found. Some suggest he escaped and lived a life after selling his riches. Others say he was cheated from his money and died penniless. Either way, pretty fascinating that he just disappeared. In the years following, outbreaks of the war and forms of the War of Spain of Succession and uh, the various so-called French and Indian Wars, privateers on the side of the French worked on taking vessels in the New England area of the colonies. English and indigenous fought on the land against the French. I mentioned privateers for the French, but the big uptick was more privateers for the British and colonial forces. So this spike of more privateers had worked for the war, but following the war's conclusion around 1713, there were a lot of privateers with very little work. Now the War of Spain of Succession I mentioned is also known as Queen Anne's War to the British and the colonists at the time, so that's why there's both. You use both names, I guess. I don't know. Now, while this is where a lot of the Golden Age pirates make their debut, I want to stop for a second and talk about the methodology of them. Firstly, before this point, there's a lot of uh, Red Baron style class and chivalry in regards to the way pirates behave. I think this is more romanticism, but when you think about it, the way of life that they had, there's really no options but to live by certain rules. You're sailing in the open waters. Do you risk your life and the life of everyone you have aboard, firing cannons and getting risk blown to hell, or do you take to the sword and board the vessel and fight the good fight? Also, I think fight the good fight might be my unofficial slogan because I've said it a bunch. <laughs> anyway, not only that, but most of the time the pirates were too smart to go against any fully armed ships, typically aiming at the lesser armed or unarmed merchant vessels. Also, the pirate code that is referred to so often in things of fiction like Pirates of the Caribbean was an actual thing, fun to know. Covered different things like how the crew should keep their weapons which is, you know, good, in good condition. <laughs> Watch and work shifts, um, shipboard laws, desertion, fighting, splitting, earnings, such things like that. One of the things that people think about, you know, some of these ships they list as 300 people. Well, that doesn't mean 300 people on deck at one time. There's people sleeping so they can sail in the night, you know, things like that, just to consider. There's also prices to be paid for those who are injured, typically the weight of the limb in pieces of eight. What is a piece of eight, you ask? Well, that's a Spanish dollar that is worth eight reals and could literally be cut up, like, legally. They're like, yeah, go ahead, cut our money up, which is, which is weird, but one of the one whole Spanish dollar was a dollar, but with it being silver, it'd be a worth a little more today than it was back then. But either way, if your arm got blown off, your right arm got blown off, 600 pieces of eight for you, 500 for the left, 500 for the right leg, and 400 for the left one, and then 100 per eye and finger, respectively. So, these varied, ship to ship, captain to captain, but more or less, they... You know, that's how they went. You know, things had to be a little organized. They almost always had sailing backgrounds, the sailors. Uh, the ones who did not were most likely pressed into service, but that's a pretty small fraction. And they learned quickly. They got used to the lifestyle. And not every crew member was just a sword-swinging warrior. You know, every man had specific trades, typically. You know, you had to have carpenters to repair the ship, bookkeepers to track the money coming in and out, tailors for repairing sails or, you know, 
outfitting the crew um you know all these things to keep the ship running smoothly this meant that the crew was typically used to you know these kinds of rules despite having the ravaging ruthless reputations that they like people put on them and then their union jacks and country flags swapped out for jolly rogers which are you know the skull and crossbones a black flag with a skull and crossbones although each pirate kind of had different versions of it and they customized it to show their unique vision a lot of this seems very familiar to me having been in the navy there's a lot of rules for everything even like the little things not to mention with sailors being super superstitious or just regularly superstitious uh so every little thing would be followed pretty well because you know if you don't something bad can happen uh I found a good quote that also speaks to the attitude of the pirates who would soon rage on the seas. The quote goes, There is nothing so desperately monotonous as the sea, and I no longer wonder at the cruelty of pirates. And that by author and poet James Russell Lowell. And I think, having seen the very thing that Lowell mentions, this could be very true. You know, as the... But also, you know, the hostility definitely stemmed from a combination of resistance as well as tactics and scorn from their lo- from their former lives as well as just how things were back then. But especially, you know, in the Golden Age, these pirates were pretty brutal. Uh, so with that, let's go into the big boys, the major dudes, the bros. Anyway, <laughs> Captain William Kidd is the first up a pirate hunter turned pirate himself after a few years of sailing and uh, after a few years of sailing for others and working his way at into a sponsored ship called the Adventure Galley, Kid's ill view of tradition and royalty was pretty obvious. An incident of refusal to give salute to a Royal Navy ship after being, you know, indicated to do so ended up in his crew smacking their backsides as their ship sailed past. They were uh, essentially pulled over after that, and uh, a lot of his crew was pressed into service on the Royal crew, uh, on the Royal ship which is, yeah. Despite this, he hunted pirate vessels in the colonies, New York in particular, That was kind of where his commission was, but uh, he went and chased different places, attempting to locate pirate strongholds in places like Madagascar. Uh, A few years into his voyage, he was accused of piracy due to avoiding being his crew being impressed, but his rationale was that his letter of mark protected his crew from that. Shortly after that, he took the Q-Dog Merchant, a medium-sized ship hired by Armenians, uh, which had quite the bounty. He did so with the French flag raised, the Q-Dog having French papers, and thus probably were less suspicious of French colors at the time. He lost some men after encountering another pirate, Robert Culliford, not through battle, but just some kind of just left and joined up with Culliford because... I guess he was, <laughs> he sold him on it, I don't know. He abandoned the Adventure Galley as it was rotten at this point and returned to the Caribbean with his Adventure Prize. That's the Kudog merchant that he renamed. He knew he knew that he was in the crosshairs of the crown and thus ditched the ship in the Caribbean and then sailed to New York in a different way. The governor of New York at the time was an investor of kids and thus, with that, he wanted to have kids sent to England as the laws were beginning to change in the colonies to combat piracy and were no longer worried about only the captain but any conspirators as well. So this guy's kind of covering his own butt at this time um, and charged him and wanted to charge kid and have him sent on his own. Like, hey, I caught him, so don't, don't get me. Um... He used a false pardon for a kid, uh, tricked him to getting into Boston, where he was arrested. He was found guilty of murder and five counts of piracy. He was hanged and displayed for others to see, uh, for pirates to be warned, essentially. And he he left behind a treasure that many have tried to find, even the weirdos in the Oak Island. Like, if you've ever seen that show on the History Channel, uh, they haven't found it. Anyway, spoiler alert. <laughs> It has not been found, uh, and many of his exploits have been shrouded in in legend. So, another pirate shrouded in legend is known as Black Caesar. Not my name for him, but, you know, he was allegedly a African pirate 
West African pirate who found his way onto Blackbeard's ship. Only not a lot is known for certain, but he is known to be in service aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge, which is Blackbeard's ship. He generally thought to be an ex-slave, but also has a legendary status of being a chieftain where he hails from, though no real record of this exists. All that segueing into Blackbeard, who has a similar origin story, vague and full of guesses. Edward Teach is his suspected name, although there are many variations of this and sometimes include Teak or Thatch. He's also very likely to have been a sailor or privateer in the War of Spanish Succession, given the name he would later rename the ship Queen Anne's Revenge, as the name points to the alternate name for the war from the English perspective, I guess. Though it could also be a reference to the now-dead Queen Anne who was succeeded by George, who is of German ancestry and also was disliked by quite a few people. The ship itself, a captured French slave ship called the Concorde, a frigate which was a more modern interpretation of the Carex I'd mentioned before. Teach had upgraded the ship with more guns after taking it over and added black flags to it. Often Blackbeard's Jolly Roger is depicted as a horned skeleton uh, implicating a devil or death. Uh, holding an hourglass in one hand and a spear in the other while stabbing a heart, showing that time is almost out and death comes for you. Unfortunately, this imagery came out many years after his time to the tune of 200 years, and most depictions only hold that it was Black Flag with death's head or skulls, essentially, on it. Uh, and all of that information on his Jolly Roger coming from the people who are studying the shipwreck of this very ship right now, so... Anyway, after the war's conclusion, as I mentioned, many former sailors turned pirate. One of the anyway, after the war's conclusion, as I mentioned, many fa former sailors turned pirate. And him being one of these legendary sailors, uh, a lot of his exploits make it sound like he reigned for like 30 years in the Caribbean. But in reality, his brutality was only a few years long. In 1717, Blackbeard sailed with others, Benjamin Hornigold, Steed Bonnet, and notorious pirates of their own, in two sloops, which are you know, smaller warships, and overtook the Concorde in the Caribbean after sailing from Chesapeake. After a year of activity in the Bahamas following this, Blackbeard, followed by three sloops, got aggressive and blockaded the, hoarder, uh, blockaded the harbor of Charleston. This and many other instances would inspire the Crown to send British dignitaries to the American colonies to see that laws were followed exactly as the Crown issued when it came to pirates especially. This would be a theme in which the colonies resisted the rule since the laws of the crown were, were written did not really fit with how the way of life was in the colonies. You know, you're making a law for us over here, but you don't understand how life is over here. Blackbeard had begun to cause some major damage and was definitely being targeted by the crown. After the blockade of Charleston, the Queen Anne's Revenge was spotted run aground alongside another ship off the coast of North Carolina. Some speculate that he received a pardon and this was his retirement. But what gold did he have to do so? You know, what was he using the money from this Charleston shakedown? Uh... It's speculated that his treasure was not merely that of golden variety, but it came in the uh, but that he came to shore with slaves and sold them within the area of Bath, North Carolina. Witnesses claim no lives were lost when the ships were wrecked, so as points to possible intentional crash. Other evidence of this slave trade was that North Carolina was struggling prior to this point economically, but following his arrival, there was an improvement in in the economy. When I read this originally, I thought that this was you know, implying that his improvement on the economy was his gold. Like he he's spending a lot of money, he's dumping money into the local you know shops and things. Uh, you know, with the gold that he earned at sea. But you know, it's no secret that a large portion of pirates did deal with sl like enslaved. They could be bought for less from pirates than from a typical dealer, like an official source. Which you know is silly because. You're literally selling people. That's, that's such an unofficial thing to do. Anyway, after a six-month retirement, Teach 
yearned for the seas and thus returned to piracy despite having been given a royal pardon. This brought some major attention to him and he was pursued by a Lieutenant Robert Maynard of the Royal Navy who was very much still concerned with Blackbeard. Their battle took place on Ocracoke Island with Teach thinking it was a place that larger Royal Navy vessels would not really be able to approach due to the shallow waters and he was kind of right. One ship pursued him and ended up getting stuck, ran aground and he shot the you know, he shot that one out of service, and then he found the other one to be empty on the deck, thinking maybe they'd jump ship or there was a skeleton crew. The pirate crew boarded, and only to be found with a surprise attack from underneath the deck. Massive battle happened, and an English sailor hacked at Blackbeard's neck with a broadsword, and Blackbeard allegedly remarked something to the effect of, Well done, lads, before attempting to fire one of his six pistols at Lieutenant Maynard before another blow killed him, and Maynard also, I'm pretty sure, shot him. The Royal Sailors claimed to have shot him some five times and stabbed him 20, (laughs) I guess, to make sure that he was really dead. And I think this also speaks to both the disdain and also maybe the fear from these pirates, Um, but mostly to this disdain from the crown. And they took his head off, you know, hacked it off, Threw his body over the wa- uh, over the side, and is legend that it swam around the ship six times. His head brought back to Virginia and put on a pike to stir fear for other pirates. Others include Calico Jack and Anne Bonnie, who I quoted Anne Bonnie at the beginning of the first episode. Jack Rackham had taken another pirate's vessel, Charles Vane, and his love interest Anne Bonnie joined him as they terrorized ships in the Caribbean. They also had another lady on board. Mary Reed, who was said to have dressed like a man in battle, but many suspect that the crew would have been more than aware that she was a female uh, the rest of the time. It's kind of hard to hide in those close quarters of a situation, I feel like. Operating around 1718 to 1720, Calico Jack got his name from the colorful clothes that he wore, which I find kind of funny. You know, old-timey nicknames always crack me up. Blackbeard. He had a big black beard. Calico Jack. He dressed like a colorful cat. And Jack was pretty clever. I'll give him that. Oh, totally didn't mean to rhyme. (laughs) I did not. I did not mean that. That's pretty funny. Anyway, he was clever. Uh, There was an incident that I found where he was being pursued by a Spanish warship. And Jack was in a smaller sloop. Was definitely outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, but not outplanned. Hamilton fans, you get it. Anyway, the larger ship was pushed further from the coast due to the low tide and that they could not follow the ship in because, you know, that's just how it worked. The big ship, it couldn't go. It was, uh, you know, would get ran aground, stuck, whatever. So they anchored out, waited. But during the night, Jack and his crew rode out on a smaller boats to capture an English sloop that the Spanish had with them and overpowered the Spanish aboard. And when the sun broke over the horizon, the Spanish warship began its assault on an empty ship and Calico Jack sailed away with a new one. Which is pretty clever, if you ask me. Call him Jack Fox instead, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, after many misadventures, the Governor Woods Rogers declared war on Jack and crew, declaring them pirates, and so hunters began to give chase in 1720. After a quick battle on Halloween, Jack gave quarter, pirate lingo for surrender, and they were captured, tried, sentenced to hang. Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed both claimed to be pregnant and thus were granted a stay of execution. Anne Bonnie also allegedly chastised Jack's actions during the battle, saying he gave up too quickly. She said, quote, if you had fought like a man, you'd need not have been hanged like a dog, which is brutal, but truthful, you know. Come on, Jack, get your get your stuff together. Either way, Jack was hanged. Reed died in her cell, perhaps due to childbirth, but maybe anything being as how people died from all the things back then. But Bonnie vanished from the records. Uh, there's no record of death, release, 
escape aliens there's nothing she's just gone so interesting we also have the likes of black sam bellamy who is said to have captured some 50 ships and coins worth of upwards of 100 million dollars in modern day money he was named black sam not because of cultural appropriation as deadpool might suggest but simply because his hair was long and black and he wore black stuff sometimes and instead of using a wig which was the fashion at the time uh he was like nah i'm just gonna have my regular glorious hair Anyway, you know, another nickname because of hair, which is, you know, hilarious. Sam actually became very popular due to his more gentle approach of pirating, often not using violence if not necessary, and also very generous. Another nickname given was Prince of Pirates, as well as the Robin Hood of the Sea. First major score came in the taking of a slaving ship that had just completed its sail, full of new cargo from said sail. Captain surrendered fairly quickly, and Jack took his new ship for his own, adding guns from his old ship, as well as removing the captain's quarters, probably to decrease the weight and increase speed. As a young pirate, only 28 at the time, his career was cut short by a storm after a few more ships that he had taken. Um... The storm occurred in April of 1717, and he was never found, but the remnants of his ship were in 1982. I don't think he was... I don't, even if they would have found him, I don't think he would have been alive. I don't know. I mentioned him, but the last major Golden Age pirate I wanted to talk about was Charles Vane. His story is kind of interesting. He ended up being one of the leader lead pirates of Nassau, the famous pirate port. He was especially brutal, killing many and torturing others. Vane was even one of the few who said no to a royal pardon by King George, leading others to do the same thing. He feigned interest after being captured and was released, but a month later he was kind of back at it. A few months after that, in July of 1718, Vane was blockaded in Nassau by Woods Rogers. Vane had a smaller ship retrofitted to be turned into a fire ship and this ship only caused damage to really one but the other ships kind of moved out of the way in evasive action and thus a big hole was made so Vane's ship could escape. Working at taking other ships in the Bahamas for the next few months even meeting up with his old friend Blackbeard potentially trying to get him back in the game. One last score man we can do it uh, before <laughs> departing once again. They tried to attack a vessel but then found out that it was a French Royal Navy ship and uh, he turned and ran. Turned tail. He's out of here. And Calico Jack used this opportunity to instigate a mutiny. And Vane was voted out. And the people who voted for Vane and Vane were given a different ship. Which I guess is probably the nicest way that could have gone. But I find it pretty ironic that Calico Jack instigated a mutiny over cowardice. Given how his end came. But <laughs> you know just a little just a little silly. After taking different ships for the next few months into 1719, Vane was caught in a hurricane and stranded on an island. Allegedly, according to the book, A General History of Pirates by a supposed Captain Charles Johnson, which is uh, assumed to be a pseudonym, Vane was spotted by turtle hunters who gave him some of their haul to survive on this island before leaving because they were like, I don't know, this guy seems sketchy. We'll just give him some turtle meat, I guess. And... And then, later, an English vessel came up, and this guy, the captain of this ship, was a former pirate hunter who knew who Vane was. He recognized him, he said, Alright man, well, this is it. I'll be back in a little bit. I'm gonna go hit a port, and I'm coming back. You know, however long that takes. Uh, if you're here, when I come back, I'm taking you in. And so, you know, Vane was like, I gotta get off this island, dude. So, another ship, he managed to flag another ship down. And this ship actually took him, he gave him a fake name, and joined the crew, and, you know, having been a sailor, I'm sure it was easy for him to be like, yeah, I can do this grunt work if it means survival. Well, by pure happenstance, that ship ended up crossing paths with the first English Navy ship that, uh, or the English ship with the pirate hunter on, and those two captains were friends. And so they pulled alongside each other, and, like, the crews kind of hung out, 
And the captain's like, hey, come over to my ship. And the pirate hunter said, all right, cool. Yeah, I'll come over for dinner. And so they had dinner. <laughs> and during that dinner, he was leaving and he w he saw Charles Vane like swabbing a deck or something in the back. And he's like, hey, man, I know that guy. I know that dude. And I'm sure that one captain who picked him up is like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's Charles Vane. My bad. <laughs> anyway. So he, he got caught. He got caught through that. And he was brought to Jamaica and then hanged. And then, you know, his corpse was displayed for all to see, which is a pretty common thing to do at that time. Various powers now focused heavily on pirates and they began to take major precautions. Uh, estimated three to 5,000 pirates at work uh, between 17 and Eight, uh, 1717 and 1718 but as the response changed and the punishments became more cruel towards pirates and their crews those numbers dropped to a reported less than 200 by 1726 increase in different navies and harsh tactics and anti-piracy uh, certainly helped alongside the piracy act of 1717 which enabled local governors to do a lot more in line with the crown's view uh, the last nail in the golden age coffin being the death of black bart roberts who by the time of his death had taken 470 ships over the course of his adventures he didn't have them like in a fleet he had just you know captured them and took their money uh he was killed when his ship was broadsided by cannon fire in 1722 and many see this as the end as rob uh roberts was you know one of the most successful pirates at the time a different pirate still operated barbary pirates still active on the north side of africa with the 18th century becoming more hostile between the colonists and the english the declaration of independence was signed and then when war broke out uh America lost the support of the British Navy against these Barbary pirates, but after gaining independence, America was recognized by these pirates as an official, like, you're, hey, you're country now. But they also extorted them for protection on the seas, which is, you know, whatever. Eventually, the price grew too heavy, and thus began uh, Barbary Wars, in which the U.S., Sweden, and Sicily joined together to fight these pirates, though the final blow came in the 1830s when uh, French conquered algeria in asia the most fascinating story in piracy comes from 19th century a pirate named Jungi, his father and brother were both also pirates so as in his family uh in his early or in his years he would uh impress upon like put a 15 year old pressed into service basically kidnapping them uh but this kid would eventually be adopted by him a few years later and uh Jung ended up going to a brothel and in this brothel he found a bride in the form of the madame there and some speculate that she was privy to giving him some secrets but from the men visiting the establishment a la some you know pillow talking which was actually pretty common for uh, brothels at the time a lot of a lot of secrets being spilled there either way they got married she came in the fold born Shi yang little is known about her until the marriage after which she is known as uh zhong gi sao or wife of zhong gi which is interesting i guess that she just changed her whole name that's that's who you are you are the wife and that's it uh they were together and decided to adopt that younger sailor that i mentioned before but she would go on to marry that guy after zhong gi's death which is you know this family tree's a mess so before that uh, Zhongyi and Zhongyi Sao spent nearly six years together as uh, as their fleets grew and their fortune grew. Uh, Zhongyi was eventually lost at sea either due to a storm or an accident or murder. Who hmm? was he pushed? We don't know. Either way, Zhongyi Sao became Zhongxi, which is the widow of Zheng. <laughs> <laughs> and before marrying that stepson Chung Pao. Now she's also been known, known as Ching Shi, uh, just to, you know, make things more confusing or interesting. I don't know. But that's what I'm going to use that name, Chung, 
Qingxi for from now on because she's no longer the widow of that guy or the wife of that guy so after this marriage power grew even further and she had to act quick you know to solidify the control over the inherited power that she possessed a year following her tanking power she made a name for herself by taking out a ship of or a fleet of 35 ships and soon after her stepson turned husband took out a fleet of his own allegedly splitting the chinese fleet in half which is pretty aggressive now this uh this resulted in an increased activity of pirates further contributing to the confederation which was now under her leadership she quickly became a concern not only for the Qing dynasty but also for the Portuguese and English powers in the area. English still kind of sore from their loss of the American colonies during the Revolutionary War were reluctant to forfeit the lucrative opium trade that they maintained in East Asia. By 1809 both sides united with the Chinese in a joint effort to be you know overcome this sizable pirate force. The pirate fleet was believed to com uh, be composed of around 400 ships and upwards of 40,000 pirates on the lower end estimates and these pirates you know they would evade blockades you know without losing ships and destroying others and a lot of different interesting uh, situations. These pirate junks varied in size and design, resembled the carracks and sloops used by the Atlantic pirates at the same time, or from years a little bit prior. There's also some speculation as, now there is some speculation as to what inspired her eventual surrender, like you had all this power, what's the deal? But the most prominent theory being that with all the power that she had, she was able to negotiate better. She had a better stance to go, okay. Listen, it's not looking great for you, so you better just give me what I want. So in 1810, negotiations were started, where in response to their surrender, Bao, her son-slash-husband guy, would receive an official title and keep ships for his private fleet, while they gave up a large portion of the their bulk fleet. Almost 20,000 men who would essentially be commissioned into service along with the 200-some ships that they surrendered. She was able to retire peacefully, and Bao combated against some of the former coalition, in which defeated them and continued to improve his standing with the government. And he died in 1822 in battle, and Ching Shi passed away in 1844 at the age of 68, which is one of the oldest ages of pirates, pirate captains that I've found. Like obviously, there's probably some other ones, but it's pretty impressive. You know, you know one of the most powerful and influ influential pirates who was able to take three powerful nations and basically bend them to her will and negotiate a full pardon and all these things and and it was a lady who was doing it which stereotypically you wouldn't think of right her story is massive and there's so much more so i would suggest look into it uh, you know yourself but she's even the basis for one of the pirates in the pirates of caribbean movies which i think is cool that they included that now after this there's some pirates in the mexican gulf but these were kind of quelled by british and american navies teaming up against them by the 1850s, piracy in Asia kind of died down drastically to the superpower that had become England's navy and also America's navy helping. There are some cases of river privacy in the United States along the Mississippi and other locations. There's a man named Dan Seavey, which, perfect pirate name, Seavey, anyway, became a pirate on the Great Lakes, which is kind of hilarious. Like, it's not where I would think it would happen, but it makes sense because they're big. Uh, he moved to Wisconsin uh, after joining the navy at 13. <laughs> So he left home, 13, joined the Navy, moved to Wisconsin, got married, and then, then went to the Gondike Gold Rush in 1898, failed at that, moved back, then moved to Michigan, got a ship, and he began to steal cargo at night from other ships uh, on, on the Great Lakes. He'd also sabotage different sea lights and then cause other ships to wreck and then steal the cargo from that. Now, he uh, had ended his life at, like, he 
it was like 80 something when he ended up dying and he was a marshal later in life taking uh chasing after poachers which is kind of funny because he was a poacher at one point himself i guess who better to hunt him than a former poacher <laughs> you know there's a there's a big gap between then and more modern times obviously everybody's pretty familiar with the modern stories of piracy off the coast of somalia malacca and asia uh some estimates range up to 16 billion dollars lost per year to piracy which is way more than i thought honestly I, I couldn't put a number on it if i was gonna guess but that is a lot whether they take a ship and ransom it or just take it steal the cargo sell it on their own who knows the you know, tactics often include force boarding blockading hostage taking hiding around the banks on the coast with smaller boats approach often cargo ships with little defenses you know if you've seen captain phillips you know what i'm talking about that movie being based on the real life taking of the marisk alabama by somali pirates and one of tom hanks's best movies if you ask me the end the ending sequence where uh the real life navy corpsman is taking him through intake and he's like a trauma patient at this point that like always gets me i was like ah okay Anyway, other acts of piracy that can be thought to uh, translate to piracy are things like hijacking an airplane, you know, more modern take on piracy, uh, which carries, you know, its own kind of thing. But D.B. Cooper, air pirate, dude. Uh, there's also a different kind of air piracy in World War One, which is kind of interesting. Uh, this case involves Germans using a Zeppelin to fly over a Norwegian ship and then propel down and take over the Norwegian ship, which is a wild story and I don't know how that hasn't been in a movie or a whole movie itself. But anyway, that about wraps it up. Not quite two equal halves, but I think if I left out parts at the beginning of this one, it would not have flowed as well as I would have liked. So hopefully you all enjoyed it. With that, you know, let's discuss some interesting things we learned in these this episode and, and then we'll get into the remedial rant, uh, remedial rant section my first thought is just how awful the conditions were compared to our lives now like in general life is better more comfortable but on a ship especially holy cow cramped stinky bad food sometimes months at sea the longest i was ever out at sea on deployment was like 40 days i think which is short of the 40 day mark that a 45 day mark for a beer day in the u.s navy which kind of sucked that we missed it <laughs> the other part is that the stereotypical alcohol that they drank wasn't just for fun that i mentioned you know that the beer could give them nutrition and be kept longer due to not being able to hold bad microorganisms yeah need those carbs you know what i'm saying Another thing I liked learning about was that the pirates really had a code that they lived by. I assume it emanates from a code of conduct that uh, other legitimate ship operations would have, and it's just a good way to keep things organized and keep people accountable for their actions. With that, let's get into the remedial rants section. The first and really, I guess, kind of only thing I'm thinking about is a lot of romanticism between pirates, like in general, and then also the specific groups. Like, you got a lot of romanticism and Golden Age pirates is also Vikings. So, descriptions of both have been taken a sort of, like, hobo-she-type style with the dreadlocks and eye paint. And I'm sure with how well-meshed pirate crews were that there was some sort of diverse style going on. But a large portion of these men were once Royal Navy sailors and still held views of fashion at that time. There are, of course, some who don't, and there's all there are those lifelong sailors who are very scrappy-looking and often had tattoos indicating so. You know, not every pirate looked like Jack Sparrow. Not every pirate looked like George Washington, but there's a lot of mixing going on. Uh, as for the Vikings, well, you're not one. I'm sorry. If you're listening to this, 
you're not a Viking, you know, I'm sorry. They they weren't really even, like, if you think about it, <laughs> they were just normal dudes for the time. They were raiding to gain money and sometimes land, and not every person of Norwegian heritage is destined to rock that weird mohawk undercut dreadlock thing, mainly because it's not real. The face paint is also in dispute. Hell, the shield wall might not even be used by that by them at all. Like the Spartan fascination before, the Viking one leaves very little to true fact, and it's kind of frustrating as a fan of history to see people involved in diluted or fake versions of it, and acting as if believing in that or like copying that style makes them somehow better than others. I you know I see people with like the full Viking symbol, like head tattoo, like they put whole tattoos on their heads, and they're like, "This is it, I'm." I'm that guy, and, like, you know, you're not, they didn't, like, they might have had tattoos, they might have done stuff like that, but on the whole, they were just another, you know, medieval society, they had full suits of armor that chain mail and shit, like, they, they didn't go into battle without helmets, no matter how pretty their hair might have been, they didn't drink from skulls, uh, you know, they, they wore full suits of armor in battle, and Viking funerals were not always burnt, you know, buried at sea they didn't have these fire pyre shoot an arrow at the ship kind of thing most of them were buried in the ground why why how do we know well we found a lot of them like granted the really really rich guys are like yeah i think i'm going to do that but on the whole most of them buried in the ground sorry about it i don't know what to tell you you know it's not an ethnicity it's a job description and they only did that part-time people belonging to these regions did discover the new world before columbus so i guess you know we can give credit to them for that but i don't know like i i appreciate them and you know as somebody who loves history i do admire like what they were able to do like how captivating their stories are but that it's not what Hollywood wants you to believe it is. And I see a lot of people copying the Hollywood version of it, you know, with the, with the Mohawk hair thing that I've seen a lot. And that's not, there's, there's no basis in reality for that. So anyway, that's it for this week's remedial rants. And that's it for this week's episode as well. A lot of stuff going on. Like I said, it 100% could be its own podcast. Like, just pirates alone and it probably is i hope you all enjoyed this episode next week's gonna be fun too back to asia for some look at the samurai the asian version of noble knights came to prominence in the middle ages their skills were unmatched and their honor code is something that is synonymous with their name but were they any different than the feudal lords who held supremacy over the common folk in europe at the time we explore japan next week uh further and we dive in and learn about the fearsome warriors that are the samurai. Can't wait to get that one to you guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the reviews and sharing with your friends. Like I said, if you want to support the show more, go to Linktree in the description. Check out the merch, leave tips. Also, if you have any suggestions for topics, email me at remedialscholar at gmail.com. And join the Facebook page, which is in the Linktree as well. And with that, thank you. Have a great week.